Our lesson comes from Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at the 32nd verse. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, obtained promises, enforced justice, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong in weakness, became mighty in battle, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they would rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Since therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so close. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you are in Christ, you're a saint. I know we don't often think of it that way. When we hear the word saint, we often think of those exemplary figures that get etched into stained glass. And yet if you're in Christ, you're a saint. In the New Testament, the word saint, hagioi in Greek, means believer. It means disciple. It means a Christian. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, the Bible says you're a saint. And as we celebrate All Saints Day, we're celebrating those saints that have gone before us and celebrating our inclusion by God's grace among those saints. But isn't it true, though, that we struggle with our sainthood? I mean, I don't know about you, but I struggle with sainthood each and every day. I mean, sometimes the things that come out of our mouth that we don't expect. It was homecoming last night for one of my daughter's high schools. And there's a boy. <laughs> and I met said boy. And one of the students here at Christchurch who knew him thought it would be funny to tell said boy that when he meets the father, he should refer to me with all of my titles mixed together. The very reverend father, Dean F Paul Donison. Needless to say, when I actually met the boy, he instead was speechless. Good strong handshake, looked me in the eye. There's some fear in those eyes but not enough fear in those eyes. And so when my daughter came home from homecoming last night, the first 
words out of my mouth were, the next time I meet the boy, it's going to be at the gun club. I said those words. We struggle with our sainthood. Things come out of our mouths. We do things. We delve into our brokenness. And we begin to wonder on feasts like all saints. Is the Bible really telling the truth? That if I'm in Christ, I am a saint counted among his chosen, his elect. See, the gospel we find here in Hebrews chapter 11 and 12 is that our sainthood, your sainthood, my sainthood, every Christian and their sainthood is first of all common. Common in the sense it's not unique. We stand in a long history of those who God has called to himself to be his people, his saints. And we find commonality and unity with those saints, the communion of saints. But not only is our sainthood common, but we find in this Hebrews 11 and 12 text that our sainthood is Christ-likeness. At the end of the day, the prescription, the call, the picture, the image of what sainthood actually looks like is not hidden to us. We don't need to climb a high mountain and try and figure out, oh, what, what could God want from me? No, he's put it right in front of us to be conformed to the image of his son. But not only do we see that our sainthood is common and our sainthood is Christ-likeness, but we find in this text that our sainthood is confirmed. It is something that is not passing away. See, first we find that our sainthood is common Chapter 12 of Hebrews begins, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these witnesses that were told in verse 39 and 40, it's, it's amazing to hear on all saints. In verse 39 and 40, after this incredible chapter all about these heroes of the faith, verse 39 of chapter 11 says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God provided something better for us, that without us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, we are surrounded with such a cloud of witnesses. In other words, what Hebrews is saying, to use the words of Chrysostom, is that can you imagine the dignity that it's been given to you that Abraham and the Apostle Paul, and you could add in whatever favorite saints along the way in the last 2,000 years of Christianity, that they stand waiting for you and for I to complete our course of faith before we will together be resurrected and glorified before God. We are surrounded by a long history of those who God has called to be his saints in this world. God has been doing this for millennia, calling common people to live lives of uncommon glory for God. See, chapter 11, again, that whole of heroes it's easy to be sort of inspired and both intimidated by it, right? Women received back, they're dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. And you want to think, does, does my life line up with Hebrews chapter 11? It's so intimidating. I, I, I love the fact that Scripture 
invites us to read a fuller account of these people's lives. I love that Samson is included in this list in verse 32. I mean, Samson is one of my favorite Hebrew Bible characters because this man was so very, very broken and yet so very, very used by God for his purposes. And as we read through the biography of saints throughout history, we see broken lives that God has chosen, common sinners whom God has called to be his saints in the world. And again, friends, this is how God gets the glory. Because as 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, we have this in jars of clay. This surpassing greatness is in jars of clay. We are the ones that God has poured his grace and his call and his purpose into. And that's how God gets the glory. God gets the glory as People look upon the lives of his saints, especially those who know the full lives of those saints, those who are closest to us, who really know who we are. Those people will look on in our lives and say, there must be a God in heaven if you could be step-by-step transformed. I like how Friedrich Buechner says, the truth, of course, is that holiness is not a human quality like virtue, Holiness is Godness. And as such, it's not something people do, but something God does in them. It is something God seems especially apt to do in people who are not virtuous at all, at least not to start with. Think of Francis of Assisi or Mary Magdalene, quite unvirtuous to start with. If you're too virtuous, the chances are you think you're a saint under your own steam. And therefore, the real thing can never happen to you. This is why verse 1 of chapter 12 goes on to say, laying aside every weight in the sin which clings so close. That there is sin that creeps into our lives. We are broken, incomplete, imperfect people that God has called. And therefore, the standard common character of God's saints is not some kind of exemplary perfect life. But the consistent common life of a saint is a life of repentance. A life where when we are exposed to the reality of our sin by scripture and by the Holy Spirit and by the counsel of godly friends, that we repent. We lay aside that weight so we can run with endurance. You know the Greek athletes that I'm sure the writer of Hebrews is thinking of? You know the foundation of the Olympics here? They really laid aside every weight. I mean, they ran naked in the Olympics. Because their conviction was, we want to make sure there's nothing getting in the way of running. And so it is for the saint that God has called, this common calling to daily repentance. As we look through our bulletin and see all these names listed, as we do every year on All Saints, marking just those who even just this last year, have gone to be with the Lord. As we look through those lists of names, some who are very near to some of us, some who we may not even know, but all of these names represent a person who served as a witness to the glory of God that he calls common, ordinary people to himself and makes us his people, his saints in this world. See, your sainthood is common, not unique to you alone. 
But also your sainthood is Christ-likeness. Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 12, verse 2 goes on to say, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, in a moment, the, the writer is going to move to the cross. But first, he's saying, look to Jesus' life. That as we are running our race, as we believe the good news that God has formed us to be his saints in this world, that we look to Jesus as the standard. We look to his life as the picture of what sainthood is to look like. There is no hiddenness to the call upon our lives as saints. This is simply the call to become little Christs. To become those who by measure after measure from one degree of glory to the next are being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures, through the sacraments into the image of Jesus. It's going to look different in each of our lives. But Jesus' own life is the gift that he is giving to us. We all hear about what we're saved from, sin, death, and damnation. But do we know what we're saved for? Saved for Christ-likeness. I love our reading from the Gospel of Matthew today in verse 11. Jesus gives these words, and these actually are discipleship words. These are Words of a rabbi to his disciples. He says in verse 28, Come to me. That's the exact same call he gave there at the Sea of Galilee as he called the disciples to himself. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the yoke in the rabbinic tradition was that series and, and summary of all the teachings and interpretations of that particular rabbi. The yoke of a rabbi was the way that he read the Torah. The yoke of the rabbi was the way that he read the prophets and the writings. And he would say, this is my yoke. This is the way I interpret Moses and the prophets and the writings. And therefore, this is how you are to interpret Moses and the writings and the prophets. And this is how you are to live your life in light of this reading of Moses and the prophets and the writings. And so a rabbi would say to his disciples, take my yoke upon you. Take my body of teaching, my way of living upon yourself. Learn to live like me. This was standard rabbinic language between a rabbi and a disciple. A disciple to be an apprentice, a student, a learner, a follower. What's amazing about Jesus' yoke is that as you examine his life, you find that this life is unlike any other life. The way he reads scripture is unlike any other rabbi. The way that he lives his life mercifully, powerfully, sacrificially is unlike any other life. You begin to be convinced that there is no aspect of life itself that is not answered in the question, show me Jesus' life. 
Jesus' way is always the best way in every way. As Dallas Willard, in his monumental book, The Divine Conspiracy, which is my clergy pick of the month in the bookstore, by the way, and I'm sure my book will outsell Father Jonathan and Father Brian's like it did the last two months. Um, But Willard, in The Divine Conspiracy, says, saying Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate in saying Jesus is smart. He is not just nice, he's brilliant. He is the smartest man who has ever lived. He always has the best information on everything and certainly on things that matter most in the human life. An early report read about him, John 1, in him was life and that life was the light of men. See, the promise for us as those whom God has called to be his people, to be his chosen, his saints in this world, is the words of Romans 8, 29 are a promise for us. Those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We are being changed from one degree of glory to the next to be like Jesus. And it's interesting, that's why we wear stoles in the Anglican tradition. This stole that we wear is meant to be a visible symbol and reminder of the yoke of Jesus. It's, it's to be that picture that says, this is the yoke of Jesus. The ways, the teachings, the life of Jesus, this is the yoke that we are to take on and live. And we don't just put it on our clergy. We must put it on our clergy if they're going to teach and preach and speak and lead. We must have the yoke of Jesus. We must constantly be committed to turning back towards the yoke of Jesus. But when you look at a clergy member wearing this yoke up here, it's meant to be for you as a disciple, as a saint, as if you're looking in a mirror. As you look, you see a reflection of the truth about yourself in the gospel. That this yoke is not just on the priest. This yoke is on every one of you who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. He has placed his yoke on you. Sainthood is Christ-likeness. And it's a gift. And it's a call. And it's a promise. And it will lead us back to repentance again and again. But not only is your sainthood common, and not only is your sainthood Christ-likeness. But your sainthood is confirmed. And the whole gospel is in this. See, verse 2 of chapter 12 goes on to say, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was really important in that for Hebrews... The book of Hebrews is to remember the order of that. See, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God is the image of the reigning king. That's the seat that has been anticipated since the days of Daniel 7, where I saw a son of man come in before the ancient of days, and to him was given dominion and power and authority. This is the messianic promise that one will come who will bear the full weight of dominion and authority. The king of kings, the lord of lords, the right hand of the throne is that seat. And so it means Jesus reigns. But for Hebrews, 
which has so much emphasis on purification of sin, the order is important. Here in Hebrews chapter 12, he says he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then in sequence, after going to the cross, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 1, which we'll read in just a few weeks when it gets to Christmas tide. Those words, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed as the heir of all things, through whom all things he created, the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then listen to the order. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the author of Hebrews getting at? His emphasis on the order of cross followed by seated at the throne of power is to teach us and tell us and convict us to the core of our being that when we look at the seated posture of Jesus at the right hand of God, when we imagine this image of where Christ is right now, seated at the right hand of the throne, that it means he sits as one who has completed his work of atonement on our behalf. There is no more salvation and forgiveness yet to be won at some point down the future. This is why Anglicans do not believe in purgatory. We don't believe that there is some point where we sit before God and say, well, Lord, there's a bit more that you need to work out in me before I can go into heaven. No, on the cross, Jesus defeated the power of sin and death, as the prayer book says, once for all, offering himself a sacrifice that by his suffering and death, we might be saved. This completed work on the cross is the image of what we are to see when we look at where Jesus sits now at the right hand of God. He has done everything that needs to be done in you to save you from your sins. Yes, you will fall into sin and you will repent and you will be forgiven, but your status and my status as saints does not change because we struggle. It does not change because we suffer. It does not change because we fall into sin. We are secure in the completed work of Christ seated at the right hand of the throne of grace. Because you understand the number one reason that people leave church, this has been actually recorded statistically, the number one reason why people leave church is because after a season of sin or fall or disappointment, they come to the conclusion that perhaps this salvation didn't work for me. Because they struggle, because their circumstances declare they're not becoming a very good saint today, they decide, I'm not a saint at all. In verse 2, those beautiful words, those hard, beautiful words, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. For the joy set before him endured the cross. What, what joy was set before him to endure the cross? The fulfillment of John chapter 6, 
verses 38 and 39, where Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. You and I will have good days as saints. You and I will have awful days as saints. But your sainthood is confirmed by his finished work on the cross. Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of God is the picture of the completed, secure work of his grace in your life and my life. One of my favorite moments in cinematic history is from Forrest Gump. You know, there's that scene when Gump is in basic training. And Gump, who's, you know, kind of the everyman, very slow, and yet just seems to get it right again and again. In this moment when they're all assembling their weapons, Gump assembles his weapon, you know, disassembles and reassembles the weapon. Kind of like I want to do with the boy at the gun club. But yeah, as, the, as, as he disassembles and reassembles the weapon quickly, the drill sergeant runs over because he beats everyone else and says, Gump, why did you put together that weapon so quickly? And Gump's response is, because you told me to, drill sergeant. And the drill sergeant's response, this is a new company record, expletive, expletive, expletive. You are going to be an expletive general one day, Gump. And the reality is, that's actually a picture of the gospel. That you and I are empowered to live by grace alone, in the power of the Holy Spirit, by the conviction of Scripture, through word and sacrament, working on our hearts and our minds and our bodies again and again, working us by one degree of glory to the next to become more like Christ. We begin living into this. Why? Because he said we were going to. And he sits with the completed work of the cross at the right hand of the throne of God. And what he says is true about us because of his finished work on the cross is true of us. As Philippians 1, 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Your status, hear this. Your status as a saint is not determined by where you presently stand. Your status as a saint is not determined based on where you presently stand. Your status as a saint is determined based on where Jesus presently sits. When Monica was in labor, I got permission to tell this story. When Monica was in labor, with each of our four girls, there would come a moment when the agony of childbirth, and if you haven't been in the birthing and delivery room, you don't know what I'm talking about. And as a man, I don't know what I'm talking about. But, but being there and witnessing, when Monica would get to that point, each one of the four births where you know, the, the, the pain and the agony and the rest was just at its very highest peak. Monica would always decide to go home. Every time she would say to me, I'm not doing this today. 
I can't do this. I'm going home. And of course, the nurses would be terrified. By the third or fourth time, I was just like, this happens. And and she'd be like, get my jacket, get my boots. We're going home. And she was absolutely serious. I cannot do this. I am going home. And the only thing I could do was what I remembered. The one thing I remember from the Lamaze class was a phrase that we were given. That when your wife gets to the place where she says, I can't do this, your only good response is, you're doing it. Not as a command, not as an instruction, but as a declaration of reality. You are doing it. I can't do it. You are doing it. I can't do it. This is too hard. You are doing it. And she did do it. She could do it each time. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. This is what scripture tells us. And on this All Saints Sunday, as we look at Hebrews 11 and 12, we see that our sainthood is common. We have a communion of saints, men and women throughout the ages, ordinary people, common people. God has called to himself to be his saints in the world. We stand with them. They stand with us. But not only is our sainthood common, our sainthood is Christ-likeness. Again and again, Jesus is calling us back to himself. Live my life. This is the call. It's the best way to live in every moment. But not only is it common and not only is it Christ-likeness, your sainthood and my sainthood by grace is confirmed. Because after he endured the cross for the joy set before him, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Completed work. You and I will struggle. You and I are struggling. You may be going through a season now. You may have a season right around the corner where you will find yourself saying, I cannot do this. The call of Christ on my life is too high. I cannot do this. Hear the gospel on this All Saints weekend. You are doing it. By grace through faith, by his power alone, you are doing it. If you are a Christ, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. Happy All Saints Day. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.